think I want to start this conversation right here. I want to see how everyone interprets the discussion regarding corporal punishment, as it is a form of violence in some people's views. And I want to see as young black people in South Africa, considering the whole issue of GBV going on and also just other cases of assault, what is our view on corporal punishment? And then as we proceed in this discussion, obviously we can speak about um, GBV in its entirety, but also speak about just basic sense of how men and women relate to, to each other in South Africa. And then as we proceed, we'll also lead to other discussions. So what I'm gonna do, I'm just gonna nominate and ask people individually as we proceed there. And obviously we allow for the discussion to develop from there. So let me start maybe with Zentley. Um, what is your opinion on corporal punishment? And do you think it has any significant effect in the way someone turns out as an adult? Um, thank you for the question. Um, so basically my view on corporal punishment is, I think it works, but for a certain time, it's not something that, um, I feel like if people have more discussions about certain things, um, rather than just hitting someone because they did something wrong, is not usually the best solution. Um, probably making someone understand why something is wrong is much more only I'd say I'd understand that better than someone to actually just, just hit me because I did something wrong. So it works to a limited extent, but I do not, I don't think I'd, I'd promote it because I don't think it has had any significance in my life. And um, rather than just being told this is wrong and this is right, I think that's the only thing. And trying to make me understand that I shouldn't actually do certain things. So, in terms of its significance and how people are, I don't think it's. I think it's because they don't have those honest conversations and try to understand. I'm not saying that um, as parents, you know, you should try and um, give your children the right to bully you in their houses, in their home. However, make them try to understand where they're coming from as children and then try to teach a lesson from that. So basically I'm just saying that if we were taught to discuss certain matters and not just be hit, maybe in our relationships also we would have the same approach of asking people how they felt and value the certain things instead of resorting to violence. So that's how I feel. Okay, um, great. Um, best of all, what is your take? I know you're a social worker and you obviously have a different opinion in terms of based on your experiences dealing with people who may be in related to children particularly you obviously work in that yeah what is your opinion on the topic about corporate punishment uh, personally i i don't have a problem uh it's not a professional view what i'm giving now it's, i don't have a problem with corporate punishment because uh, as a young black man that's how i grew up and it molded me to be a person that i am today you understand uh like in the previous conversation i i've stated that uh i grew up being molded by two very strong women i don't have uh, a kind of relationship with my father you understand uh but corporal punishment is what molded me to be a very disciplined and responsible young man I am today. But uh, looking at the cases that we have, like uh, child abuse and everything 
in the workspace and in our society, uh, that's when it comes, uh, it becomes a problem, you understand? Because many people or parents or even at school, uh, 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 they use excessively corporal punishment, you understand? And that's when it becomes a problem. Uh, people, when they vent out, they, they, they vent out their anger to children and so forth, and it causes a harm on them. But yeah, that is my opinion. Uh, now, in my view, because of what is happening in society, because our society is violent, you understand, then my view is that it's not okay when it's used in a wrong way, being excessively. Okay. Sure. Thanks. I think that's, that's, that's a great take. Maybe let me also add maybe a dynamic, um, maybe getting Lerato involved as well in the discussion. Um, in your take of where we experience a lot of people maybe have a high sense of view when it comes to corporal punishment still being maintained, some people disagree. In the sense of what's going on in society, what is your take on the view that our society is quite violent? Do you think as South Africa there's a unique sense of where we can say South Africans are violent or is it just a sense of whereby it's in isolated cases and it's more specific to women? Or is it just a case of where violence is just pretty predominant in our society? regardless of the cases of particular GBV or cases of children? Do you think our society has an issue of violence as a whole or not? Sure. Um, that's a mouthful, Peter. Thank you. Um, well, I, th I think personally we are a very hurt society. Um, and the reason I say we are a very hurt society, if you look at a lot of men today, a lot of the majority of them are raised by women. And, and it's just unfortunate because when, when I came to this earth, both, my, both sexes actually made it happen for me. You know, yes, now we have so many things that, you know, if I want a kid, I can just go to a sperm donor or I can do whatever that I want to do. Same sex, I can adopt and so forth, which are great options. Uh, but naturally, for you to have a child as a woman, you would need a partner. Um, and you find that we're living in a society where the demographics don't match up. Um, a high number of women who are single-handedly raising boy men. Um, and, and it's tough for these women because uh, they wake up at four o'clock and they come back home at six o'clock. Who's, who's raising those boys, you know? And unfortunately, what happens is that the men in the streets or the boys in the streets are the ones that are raising other boys in the streets, you know? And, and I think that's where the biggest challenge also then comes in because if you are taught how to care for a woman and you are seeing your dad caring for a woman, you then aspire to become a better man and want to take care and protect your own. But I'm also not saying that you don't find men who are living with their wives and they're not beating their, their children nor their wife either, you know. So I, I don't really want to say it's a personal thing, but, you know, um, they always say hurt people hurt other people. And if you really go deep and understand the psyche and the psychology around those men who are beating up women or, or, or their kids, just gender-based, any kind of violence, you know, 
if you sit down and listen to their story, they, they have a story, you know, uh, but it's just unfortunate because, you know, I, yes, you might have a story, but you, you are still hurting me. You know, you are now making me a victim and I'm going to live with that for the rest of my life, you know. So I think in conclusion, you know, we, we do have a lot of hurt people and how we, that, we then solve the hurt part, I think, I think that that's where it's going to be a channel and we, we need to get a lot of men who have been there, done that, to come in and assist. And I see that, you know, at, we do have forums that are allowing those men to actually be helped. Um, and then we do have other groups of men who are taking liberty to say, I will volunteer my time, I will mentor young men uh, because that's what we need. Uh, we don't have a lot of good role models that are that are men, and even those those good ones are very few. Because you know how it is, the bad will always overshadow the good. You know, no matter how amazing good men are out there, but the bad will always overshadow the good. That's my take around it. Ah, uh, great. Um, yeah. Let me ask one more person as we shift the conversation going forward. I'm also wanting that lady to also get in in this particular aspect of the discussion. But let me, let me ask uh, Taban, in a sense of, when we have these kind of conversations regarding whether it's GBV, patriarchy, misogyny, and just any case where it speaks to men and women in that dynamic, do, do, you, do you believe the conversation should also be had with the older generation? Because they do take part in raising of young people, they do still play a key role in the upbringing of our society. And I still seem that that part of our society still doesn't have this kind of conversation. Is this conversation needed to be extended to them or should it be limited to us amongst young people? This is our future. We're projecting the whole issue of GBV and we should limit it to us. What is your take on that? Uh, thanks, Peter. Uh, my take on this, I think it's more important that we address the younger generation as to the older generation because uh, we have more like power to create that ripple effect. Like uh, the people coming after us, if we're able to impart that wisdom in, in terms of uh, you need to be able to like how to treat a woman and stuff. Because you realize that in this society, women tends, tend to be told that, hey, they must keep safe. They must dress like this and dress like that. Whereas growing up, I was never told how to like treat women. It's something that you learn from my father. Like even then, like I learned from his actions. You know. But also because of my younger sister, I realized that they keep telling her that hey, you need to dress like this. Come back early home. Uh, like all these boundaries. Whereas those boundaries were never explicitly told to me. So like I think if we address the younger generation and create a form of equality, it it will create an, a ripple effect in future. And in terms of talking to the older generation, it will be difficult because, I don't know, maybe it has to do with, you're not supposed to, like, back chat your father. Like, it will be a difficult conversation to have, but it does need to happen at the end of the day because when you look at our generation, like, we tend to be more free, accepting and stuff, whereas when you look at the older generation, they tend to be... Uh, Things like homophobia, like homophobia is more rampant with the older generation than us. Like for us, we tend to be, to be more open. So I think if we can start also having those conversations with them, but 
focus more on the younger generation because they, we like have this power to change whoever comes after us. So I think that's my take on it. Spend more energy on the younger guys than the, the older guys. But both sides need to hear the side of the conversation. Okay, great. Maybe let me get oh, yeah. let me get a lady to also chip in in this aspect. Um, as a lawyer, obviously you probably have a lot of cases where people come to you. I'm trying to understand exactly as a lawyer, what is your experience when it comes to cases of GBV and just any cases where women approach you, whether it's violence, abuse in any form. Um, what is your experience when, how exactly do people approach you? Or how exactly do you engage in this kind of experiences? Is it something that you predominantly see a lot or is it something that's just uh, in the case of where it's just talked about on social media, but you don't get many cases of women approaching lawyers and engaging with the law on this topic? What is your experience in this space? Um, all right. Um, thanks, Mandela. So um, I, I would say it's, it's both ways. So we do have women approach us. Um, the problem, though, becomes that it only stops, for a lot of women, it stops at approaching us. They will come for a consultation. And I mean, the story they tell you, uh, sometimes they're approaching you looking for a protection order. Sometimes they're approaching you looking for a divorce. And you consult and you tell them, and I mean, as best as you can, um, I'm sure Bethel as a, a, a person who works with, um, in the social work sphere will understand that as much as you can advise um, a victim of domestic abuse, abuse to try and extricate themselves from, from that situation, most of the time, they take the advice, you sit down, you have a consultation, and then they leave. And sometimes it is the last you hear of the person. You can follow up as many times as you want, they will not come back. Um, a few times it does go to court, but we do have challenges of belief. Um, the, the, the court system is not based on what actually happened. It is largely based on what you can prove. And a lot of the time, the women don't come with, with proof. Sometimes there is no proof to, to bring. And the man can be more compelling. The man can come with them. Um, I mean, most of the time with abuse, the, the, the woman fears the man so much that even standing in court um, and, and saying her side of the story or even telling the attorney their side of the story so that you can put it down in an affidavit to then present it to court, they will hold back because they still fear that at the end of the day, I have to go back to the house with the same man. Um, it, then, it therefore limits the amount of reach. I think in order for us to expect more women to come forward, we need to start with removing or having safe havens or other relatives for the women to come to uh, or to go to before they can actually appropriately um, approach the court systems. But we do have women that follow the, the, the process to the end. Again, we also have the women who start the process and halfway through there's um, reconciliation or they forgive, whether it's in the criminal aspect where they come in with withdrawal charges or in the civil aspect where they, the man apologizes and then you know, they forgive and they go back home. A couple of months later, they come back. So yes, we do see the types of cases and we, uh, women do approach us, but not as many as the numbers on social media and on the news tell us they are. That's, that's quite concerning. Um, that's actually worrying for me when, when you actually say that. Uh, let, me, let me also maybe ask maybe other people to also participate in this case. Um, all of you, as a man and obviously someone who lives in South Africa, when you hear instances where there's a prevalence of cases of GBV, people being assaulted, um, sexual assault, the discomfort between men and women in that particular space, 
when it comes to people maybe who are our friends and our family members, um, do you think there's any responsibility in a sense of whereby in a, someone is in a toxic relationship, whether it's your friend or family member, it is within your responsibility as a close person to them to intervene? Or is that something where obviously some cases where people, regardless of the violence or assault or discomfort in that relationship, people choose to stay? In your view, as an external person, do you feel there's a responsibility for someone to get involved in that particular sense of a toxic relationship? Uh, thank you for the question, Peter. It's, uh, it's quite a big one. <clears throat> Look, I think that uh, it's important with this topic to, to unpackage it carefully. Right? Um, you, there's, there's many aspects of this. You know, we need to define what is involved, um, what does involved mean. We, I think the, the, the fabric of society is that a relationship is between the two people who are in there because unless you're in the relationship, the depth of that relationship can never be understood. Uh, by somebody who's not in there. Uh, we, we pick up our understandings to a situation on the surface. Uh, you know, it's a silly example, but I remember when back uh, at Varsity a couple of years back, there was a friend who was in a not so great relationship. I tried to um, exactly give some advice about, you know, perhaps considering no longer being in that relationship. And um, it turns out that they, you know, her and her, her partner, made right and she ended up having a conversation with the partner that she had received advice to perhaps not be in that relationship anymore. And that turned out to be a quite an ugly situation between myself and um, the, the person she was in a relationship with. Uh, so, so to that point to saying that, you know, we have to be very, we have to treat every single scenario with the utmost diligence. And, and I think it's, it's more cautious to create an environment where people can feel encouraged to reach out for help, um, be reminded that help is available, but it's very dangerous forcing one's involvement into um, a situation. And inevitably, like I said, we have to study all of these situations carefully. And if, if, if there is a, a physical abuse that's taking place onto the woman to the point where um, you know, it's, it's inevitable, you can see, because the truth is many people are being abused, men and women in relationships, without saying it rightfully, as I think one of the uh, previous participants said, uh, in fear of retribution of what might happen when they report. You see this a lot also in um, cases where people are divorced, and where people get divorced from being in an abused relationship or coming from an re abused relationship uh, when it comes now to the topic of kids and custody. And um, why some some women don't even want to go the whole route of um, of reporting the husband or getting into those cases because if they know the degree to which they've been treated in the marriage, uh, and especially if it's a shared custody situation, and unfortunately uh, in some cases um, historically how um, families have been set up, men tend to find themselves stabilized a bit better after divorces. So the, the, there's that bit of a financial, um, how to say, uh, unfair advantage that men would have in the situation. So you couple that with the woman knowing that historically in our marriage, my relationship was, um, you know, married with abuse. I still have to send my kids out to this man every other week or every other two weeks. I don't know what he might do to them, um, even if it's a case of getting back to me. So essentially what I'm trying to get to is I think it's way too much a complex topic to, to have a general answer as to how you resolve this. You definitely need, um, one, the legislation and the systematic 
um, supporting to want to end end, end this uh, abuse as men. Uh, I recently um, got married about two years ago and I, I had my son Malachi born in December last year. So having gone through a number of season changes the last two, three years, it's, it's become more than clear, especially in listening to the types of conversation one would have with uh, people, with friends, associates and so forth. They change uh, based on the seasons that you go into, based on what you're exposed to. And unfortunately, some of us are still having the same um, immature conversations, unfounded conversations, uneducated conversations we've been having since we were ignorant boys. And it's not enough to just say that uh, if somebody doesn't teach us that, uh, how are we supposed to know better? Because that resolves, it, 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 um, it removes all responsibility um, from the man, but we definitely have that responsibility. Uh, I have a responsibility to pick it up amongst the conversations with my friends while we play FIFA. Um, you know, I have that responsibility to, to pick it up at work with my colleagues when they're talking about, um, you know, women passing by. Uh, and, you know, so, so the responsibility can never be to, okay, but, you know, it's not our fault they find themselves in the situation. We have a certain responsibility, but I'd like to caution again, the, the participation and involvement in somebody else's situation is one that really has to be taken the right way. You need to understand what the legal route is. You need to understand to Bethel's, uh, I love what, what, what Bethel and them are doing. Um, you know, when, when, when you're going to do step A, have you thought about what comes after? Because what you find yourself end up doing is that you, yes, you've helped today, but you just caused the bigger problem for tomorrow by not having a full understanding of what the system is that can support uh, the women and men also who find themselves as little as it is, who find themselves in the situation. So, you know, have a clear understanding, consult with the legal um, aspect of it, understand that if you do, if you do, uh, get her to leave that abusive relationship for the night. Will she ever be? Will she be forced to come back the next day because there's nowhere to go? Um, you know, so all of that leads to again, like I say, systematic support of women. Because this abuse you'll find that some degree or another has some sort of financial implication to it, and um, a, a financial and hierarchy, a patriotic approach to it, which is again an underlying unfair um, aspect of it. So not to labour the point, but that's my two cents. Okay, thanks, Olivia. Um, let me also get some of the other ladies as well, and also Pakiso involved as well. I'm also going to send it back, also back to Naledi. Obviously, she's a girl. She's one of the people who, and best of all, both work closely in this space. Um, I see that we have Spiwe and Dikit Zeng obviously joining in as well. I want to get your sense of the law when it comes to discussions such as GBV, rape in particular. What is your take on the whole view that um, the death penalty needs to be introduced back when it comes to cases of rape? Let me start with Spiwe. Uh, we haven't heard you speak so far, and I know you joined a bit late, but I just want to see if you have a particular view so far in this discussion. Hi, everybody. Can you guys hear me? Uh, yes, we can. Okay, sorry for being late. I just had connection issues. Um, so on my side, uh, I'm, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit too excited about, especially what you just asked me now, with the death penalty. You know, our system is, is very, I don't know if you could say weak, for lack of a better term, when it comes to that, because you might find that someone is falsely accused, you know, and the perpetrator is gone out free, but then there's a death penalty placed on that innocent person, you know. And only later maybe discover that the actual perpetrator, you know, um, 
is this one because I've seen incidences where victims don't see their rapists, maybe it's a group uh, thingy, um, and they manage to falsely identify, incorrectly rather, identify people. So I've seen a lot, a number of those cases as well. So we might want to treat it with utmost sensitivity, but for people who are actually convicted correctly and their perpetrators, um, yeah, I would, I would, I would sternly agree because it's someone violating someone else's body, you know, and the scar that that lingers or that that person carries for the rest of their lives it's 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 unbearable um i myself have been um a victim of of uh what you call this um it's an attempted yes and though it did not go that far but always seeing your perpetrator every day and seeing them as as the previous lady has said that seeing them there all the time it 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 just makes things more and more difficult. So, yeah, so in my case, I think it would be nice for them to be, um, what do you call this, to be to be persecuted accordingly. But my only qualm or concern rather would be around the falsely, yeah, falsely accused uh, perpetrators, so, or innocent people rather, so yeah. Okay. Let me also have Pakiso before I go to my lady on the topic. Pakiso, what is your take on the death penalty in the sense of rape, particularly, and also cases of violence against women or even men? Okay. So, whew, death penalty, I think that one is, yeah, it's very sensitive because we have a, a democracy, and uh, I think. Yeah, man, we, we have institutions in, in this country that are not uh, fully equipped to, um, to, to can, I don't know, like make it work. And like the, the previous uh, participant said, where someone is falsely accused, I uh, actually just saw something I was watching TV where someone was in jail for 16 years for something they didn't do. So this, this means that person was taken to jail uh, and there was still reasonable doubt. There was still doubt and there was the, the facts were not there, but they still went to, to prison. So I think that one is, no, it, it shouldn't come back. I know it was there, but it shouldn't come back. We don't have, I, our institutions are not ready for that. Okay, great. And uh, gender-based violence. Oh. So I, I know when we say gender-based violence, we, we always think men abusing uh, women. And when we say abuse, it's like men are abusing women and children. But I've, I've seen, so mostly with abuse, I've seen where like women in the streets would be dragging kids. And I'm like, if this was a man pulling that child like that, it would be a whole hoo-ha, it would be a big situation. Uh, it would be a problem. But uh, yeah, so I, I think we need to, to talk about gender-based violence and not think of, of it as men being the ones who are doing it. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for your view. Um, obviously, that's why I asked the question earlier about should we extend the discussion to just be a case of violence or should the discussion be limited to GBV? 
Um, so obviously, you know, as society, there's a lot of questions that we need to ask ourselves uh, when it comes to these kind of issues. Um, but but let, let me ask my lady, as, as someone who works um, in the space of the law and understands the exact procedures that happen or what procedures are taken, when someone approaches you and tells you a case of where they've been assaulted, raped, or so forth, how does that process look like from the point they get into your office or they send you an email? What happens until the point of whereby, assuming that they do want to proceed with the whole case or with the whole thing, what does the process look like to the point where you are in court and that whole process, what does it look like? Okay, so I'll, I'll just briefly touch on the, the rape first and then I'll talk about the uh, rest of the GPV. So when it comes to rape, if we are approached by a lady saying, I have been raped, my first instruction is go to the relevant authorities. You do not need an attorney when you have been a victim because the state in that situation is your attorney. The prosecutor is your attorney. There are social workers who are there to deal with that. Attorneys are there to defend um, someone who is perhaps falsely accused, even those who are correctly accused. Um, attorneys do not, will not drive your matter forward. Yes, we can have what you call a watching brief, which is an attorney who is there to make sure, to watch over the prosecution, to make sure that your case is properly prosecuted. But I mean, for a lot of people, um, they don't have the money to hire an attorney just to sit and watch. So if someone comes to us and says, I have been raped, I have been molested, sexual assault, we'll tell them, go to the clinic or hospital go get um, your rape kit completed. Go to the police station, open a case. Um, even if you start at the police station and then end up at the, um, at the clinic, something else we do is we support the victims because there are too many occasions where someone says, I have been to the police and they've told me they can't help me because this um, institution or this police station doesn't have jurisdiction over my matter. Or um, Some police officers are quite clearly and quite simply lazy where you want to open a case and they chase you away for whatever reason. Having an attorney there, or at least, I mean, not even someone you have to pay, just a friend, someone who's going to stand there and force the, attorney, uh, the, 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 the police to open that case um, can help, but not necessarily to take anything further to court. That's the only reason perhaps you could meet an attorney, because we know the right things to say to the police, the right threats to make to the police to make sure that they open a the case. Um, but that's, what's, uh, that's the, um, the rape part. When it comes to gender-based violence where the person is perhaps seeking um, a protection order, we will then start asking questions. Have you been, if it is a, um, a violence where they have been assaulting over a certain time, we then ask, have you been to um, the clinic? Do you have any scars? Has there been any bruising? You know, show us, the, do you have any proof? Not that your story will not be believed. It will just make your story better. It will be easier to believe um, because remember you are, trying to convince a magistrate sitting on, 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 on the bench who has heard cases of false allegations and they have to sift out the real cases from the false cases that are brought on perhaps by jealousy or whatever reasons that some women may um, lay false charges. But So we start with the, what have you done? What steps have you taken? Have you been to the police? Have you been to, um, to a clinic? We also advise them, go open the case because you may get a protection order but you can also get you can also get them arrested for the assault that have committed on you. Do not just stop at the civil side because protection order is civil. Um, once that is then done, we then start with the drafting the paperwork. We it's an application, so we have to draft an affidavit detailing what has happened, and it has to be as detailed as possible, um, so that 
there is no uncertainty on the on the mind of the bench when the matter comes before the court. A lot of people will speak to the clerks at the um, protection order site and they'll say, give us a summary. A summary is not sufficient. You need to clearly state out what happened on which night, on which day, how many times. Because people say, my husband hit me and he hurt me. And then that document is taken to a magistrate for an interim order and it's thrown out of court. And then people have this belief that I will not get helped. But the problem that lies at the fact that there was not enough information for the matter to be moved on to come before the court. So it starts with the consultation, drafting the paperwork, signing affidavits, then going to court to go lodge the paperwork. The person obviously has a right to defend. So they are brought before court um, and then the matter will be postponed then for a hearing date. Once a hearing is finalized, either it is the protection order is granted or is not granted. Immediately when it is granted, you get what is called um, a warrant of arrest. You get given the protection order and the warrant of arrest for that respondent's arrest should they ever um, you know, commit vi uh, the, the, the domestic violence against you once that order has been granted. Should they do that, it is sim it's as simple as going to the police station saying, I've got a protection order against this person. They have again assaulted me. Give them the, the warrant of arrest and they'll be arrested immediately. The, the victims, though, are also warned, do not misuse that. Because if you do misuse that warrant, you yourself can end up facing um, the might of the law. So that is essentially the process we take when it comes to um, gender-based violence. Uh, thanks. Uh, I must say thank you for that kind of... I think most of us are not exactly aware how the process uh, goes about in terms of where someone has to report. I mean, if someone was to be abused, whether man or woman, I, I can honestly tell you I wouldn't know what's the first step. Do I go to a clinic? Do I go to the police? Do I go to a lawyer? And that creates a whole barrier of challenges in its own right. Let me also get the last few people who haven't said anything so far in the conversation. I know Dickett Zeng and Kay just joined in a bit late. Um, you know, in this kind of conversation, so obviously I want to move the conversation to obviously allow for us to develop the other topic. Um, let me start with Dickett Zeng and Kay. In both of your... Peter, can I ask a question before you move on? No problem, no problem. Uh, I'd like to like find out from Naledi, like how does that process work if the rape victim only comes up after like uh, three months to report it? Where like you don't remember the facts because like you say it happened to you and you needed time to deal with it, and then a few months later that's when you feel confident enough to report it. So obviously like you will not remember like that time and stuff. Like how how does the process differ in that case? Okay, so um, I don't know if you heard in the news um, cases like Bob Hewitt, who raped people like years ago, and they come back 20 years later, and you know the person can still get um, convicted on the rape. It is important, though, that you do remember something. There must be some way of identifying the person, because it is easy to then misidentify. Um, a lot of people who have been raped in that sense will tell you that the trauma does not allow them to forget a lot of the details, they will be able to put the details sufficiently. It only becomes a problem in that at that stage, there is no DNA kit to, 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 to run on the victim, to then link the victim to the perpetrator. Um, the, the, it, it only affects really the method of proving that this was a person who did it. But I mean, if your story is straight, because remember, some, it sometimes will even hinge on a matter of where were you that evening? And if you do not have what the states will call an alibi to place you, at a different um, location. And if this person, if, if your response as the, the perpetrator or the accused person 
is weak or if you cannot sufficiently explain um, or defend the charges against you. Although, although the law says it is a state that bears the onus of proof, what actually happens in practice is it is the accused person that ends up um, bearing the onus of proving their innocence. And that's not what the law says, but that is actually how it happens. So it is possible to get someone who was raped 10, 15, 20 years ago to get a successful conviction today, just as long as they have enough information to allow the prosecutor. Because remember, the people who end up talking in court are not anyone who was there. So you must give enough information to the, to the police to pass on to the prosecution to then um, lay charges against the person and have a sufficient story for the person to answer to. Um, I think that's quite a, uh, quite a great subway. I wanted to add that question later on, but I think uh, appreciate at least us having that kind of understanding of what exactly happens where someone has been raped years back and only comes up or, or speaks out years later, because that does happen a lot in our society. Um, let me get Ticket Seng and Kay to also participate in the conversation. And let me start with Kay. Um, I think in, in a lot of instances where we speak about violence and also just all the problems that we have in our society as adults, this obviously does have a part where we speak about the way people are raised. And I want to ask the question regarding male vulnerability. In other words, as a man, do you believe that um, men are allowed to be vulnerable in terms of whether your upbringing, whether it's your mother, whether it's your community? As a man, do you believe there's space for you to be vulnerable in society? Because I do feel that there is a sense of where when one is not allowed to be vulnerable, it may lead someone to, or even a sense of not just leading, but it does inhibit a space for people not to be able to express themselves actually in how they feel. So we may have cases where maybe men are being emotionally abused um, and they don't speak out or they have other experiences which are negative. Do you believe that as men, there's a space for you to be vulnerable in society? Hello, everybody. Hey, how are you guys doing? Um, okay, um, my response to that is, well, it's going to be tough for certain people. Uh, some people don't have the opportunity to be vulnerable because when they're raised, they're raised to be tough. They're raised to be strong. They're raised to be like, men don't cry. And then you get those guys who are allowed to cry. Those guys who are obviously allowed the opportunity to express themselves, but obviously they're around people who can accommodate that. Other than that, if a woman had to see me crying or someone else had to see me crying, obviously I would be judged as a sissy or a soft person, et cetera, et cetera. So at the end of the day, it's all about society and how they view us, that's number one. And in terms of how people get raised, it's, it's really down to how that man gets raised. And um, I think I heard it recently that once a child sees an abuse, he will think that's normal because, like, oh, my dad does one, two, and three. Then when he grows up and he does it, it's only going to be normal because my dad did this. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, it's a matter of when someone comes to break that cycle, and that cycle would obviously be in a house where there's actually a model, basically a model house, where there's a mom and a dad, and a dad that understands the importance of non-violence to his wife, so that the child can learn from that, and then from there on, it's going to obviously create a cycle. But um, the way things are running, I don't think uh, things are going that well. But in terms of how society treats us, it's really, it's really down to, to how 
we view each other as men. And if we want us to be tough, we, we are going to portray that tough side, regardless of how society views us. Yeah, that's my point of view. Okay. Um, Dikateng, I know last discussion we had, um, you mentioned the whole thing about therapy. I want to ask you in the sense of, now maybe also Bethel can come in as someone who's a social worker. In the sense of where black people do seem not to have a very fondness when it comes to therapy, whether it's approaching social workers, psychologists, in any form. Or why do you think that is the case when it comes to therapy? Because obviously there is some case where a lot of people have bad experiences growing up. Um, is there a particular reason why most of us are not fond with approaching any formal kind of help outside of our families or pastors? Um, hello, everyone. Um, yeah, I think there could be um, a range of reasons why people, or like black people in particular, don't um, go to such services. Um, could be prejudices. Um, we grow up thinking certain things are for certain people. Like you get told that these are what people's things. So like we limit ourselves to to certain things because we think they are set aside for certain kind of people, right? And I think it could also tie in also to to a case answer to say, perhaps society does not provide us opportunities to be vulnerable. Um, and I'm not gonna speak for men, but I think in, in all aspects, um, we are taught to be strong. And like, if you tell somebody else um, a problem and you're like, ah, no, you'll be strong. And I always tell um, my friend that I hate when people tell other people to be strong. Like sometimes you need to just fall apart so that you know you can understand better where you are um so society has put us and i think it's like culture society wise um that we are led to not seek these opportunities and also because we don't have like the basic knowledge of what are the processes that goes into um therapy and perhaps also we might think um it's more of an expense you know we are also in conditions where we live in poor societies and we think it is quite expensive to spend money on something as um, frivolous or something not as important as, um, as therapy or just sitting on a couch and speaking to someone. Why would I want to pay someone to you know, run my whole life story with them? So there's a lot of prejudices and there's a lot of misconceptions that we are either taught or we pick up along the way. And those sort of like prevent us from really exploring multiple ways of therapy or multiple ways of seeking healing for ourselves. Um, so we perhaps go to like pastors, as you mentioned, but they can only help us so far, like up to a certain point, because essentially that is not their profession um, or perhaps that is not in the realm of their, um, of their expertise. So yeah, it's limitations, mental, social, economical limitations that, um, put off people, black people especially, into going into therapy. Okay, great. Um, let me probably get Si Jing and Bezwell to chip in on the last part. I probably want to spend maybe the last 10 minutes on the issue of, um, of men and women when it comes to GBV and of violence and assault. And then from there, we can also then go to the other topic. Um, but maybe my question now is extended. Let me start with Bethwell and then I'll go to CJ. When it comes to the issue of how people are raised, um, and also in the aspect of our environments, Bethel, do you believe there's enough 
education when it comes to cases of how we deal with each other as men and women. So in schools, is there enough programs that are available to educate young people about how we navigate as both men and women together as one society? Or is there no kind of platforms where, or even in schools, there's no material that's available? I mean, I know Sijang is also a teacher in that space, in a sense. So I think both of you can have a, a sense of view in this particular question. So let's start with Bethwa. I, mean, I know you're a social worker. So what's your experience in that and what's your view? Thanks, Peter. Uh, first and foremost, you see, when we have conversations like this as young people, it must be a form of awareness and, and education. And I like the fact that your August panel it's consists of uh, uh, people from different disciplines. I, I must say there are resources, there's information out there. But as young people, I don't know, it's my personal view that uh, we, 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 we are subjected to this hype of social media, uh, making a lot of noise, GBV. Others, they will say it's a good call for, for help. You understand? But we can't be having discussions like this, then what? We need actions. And my brother there spoke about, uh, uh, Olivier, about maybe we need legislations and deal with these things in a systematic way. But I must say, uh, uh, legislations are there. Uh, uh, resources are there, you understand, to educate us. But what I've realized, the way we are as young people, men and women, young men and women, I don't know whether the society created us or to view our relationship in a certain way that we have to, there's too much competition, you understand? Uh, I always say if we are in an intimate relationship with my partner, we are here to complement one another, not to compete, you understand? That's when many issues comes in. We'll find out there's too much competition uh, in relationships. There's a power struggle, you, you understand. But resources are there, information is there. And I want to weigh in, Peter. Hence I'm saying this must be not be a general talk, but a form of education and empowerment. Uh, according to Sexual Offenses Act, amended one uh, of 2007. You see, when we deal with issues of rape, gender-based violence, it's when many multidisciplinary team comes in. And for their information, you know, there's a lot of awarenesses and cry for help to say there's rape, there's gender-based violence. Then what? Like, as I said in the previous discussion, here in the fall, in the last financial year, there are many cases which were reported about rape, that none of them were prosecuted in the court of law. Like Naledi said, many people report, but they were not, such cases were not prosecuted in the court of law because ladies withdraw these cases. You understand? And it might be different for different reasons. But then what? Because if you are saying Betuel is an alleged perpetrator of rape, that rapist 
labeling is still hanging there, then what? You understand? And if one is a victim of rape or gender-based violence, it's not always the case that you have to go report to the police. Like, as I said, let's look at our local hospitals. There are Tuzela care centers where you can report a case of rape, for instance. And there are multidisciplinary team of people there. There are social workers who can listen to your case and give you a debriefing and therapeutic counseling. You understand? There are doctors there who can examine and test you and take DNA tests. There are advocates there from NPA who can prepare you for the court of law, we understand. And social development, we have uh, uh, places of safety where you can be removed temporarily and placed there. There is therapy, there is uh, life skills programs and everything. There is food, there is shelter, there is security. So this is some of the information needs to be out there. I don't know, many people are not talking about these things, we understand. So that you are in the safe space and you, you get help. Ultimately then the police come in, but already you had different aspects who, are, who will assist you in this case, you understand. Information is there. Uh, we need not to only talk, but act. We understand because it's useless. We are not. It's useless just to talk, making hype, hashtag, what, 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 what. But we are not reporting these cases, Peter. So that is a process that I wanted also to to chip in. Uh, that I know uh, there are many people who are watching this to so say it's not only in police stations because yes, many police officers are not well trained to deal with these cases. And on the issue of therapy and everything, it's important also not to seek therapy when things go wrong. Even if we are preparing to get married with my partner, we must normalize pre-marriage counseling. It's very important because we go for counseling when things are, are not okay, when we fight and everything. It's very important, you understand, to go for pre-marriage counseling to understand one another, to understand also the backgrounds, where I'm coming from, what is my vision about this marriage, what, what, uh, uh, what am I going to bring in this union of love? You understand? What are my weaknesses? It's very important. So uh, we must normalize that, not to seek counseling and, and therapy when things goes wrong, but from the onset, when men and women, as especially as young people, it's very important to normalize that so that it can assist us. If you know right, Betuel, he doesn't like one, two, three. It, it's not a surprise when we are already in marriage, but you know right, this person, his weaknesses is one, two, three, four, five. Uh, let me uh, end by saying, Peter, uh, mm, Abuse. I, 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 will, I will also agree with with Pakisu there, I, and I think I, I think I said it before that gender-based violence is not a synonym of abuse against women and children. It's not immune to that. Men too get abused. Boys too get abused. But it's real. Even 
in government, it's real. The lot of noise and awareness is focusing on, men, on, on girl, child, and women. And we are leaving boys and abused men behind. And that makes it difficult to find out the root cause of these violences that we see in a public domain or in our families. And sometimes we try to solve these issues by looking at the outlook in society. This society is violent without looking at the dynamics because of family, family view, values and, and morals. You understand? Because if my family, your family, our family, when they are combined is society, but there must be something wrong in our families. And for, 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 uh, for the matter of fact is that many families are broken, damn dysfunctional. That's why we have all these problems that we have, Peter. I will pause for that uh, for now. I, 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 I think I've, uh, I've answered your question. Uh, you can answer my question. Um, okay. Now, I think let me just move to I asked you the same question as I asked Beswell. He's obviously expanded a bit more on the topic. Um, what is your take so far with the discussion so far? Because I think at some point we have to start talking about solutions, which I wanted to do in the last segment of the discussion so that we can discuss the other topic. Um, but what is your take so far? And then I'll open for everyone else to start chipping in on their views on some solutions that we've, we may identify with. Sure. Um, so as a teacher, um, I would like to, you know, just combine um, the information that is available in um, schooling systems, right? So one of the ways that information can be made available is through life orientation. So I've had the opportunity of teaching life orientation as a teacher, even though it's um, one of the methodologies that I should be teaching, but um, the purpose of life orientation or something is really just to, uh, we know that there are kids who are coming from households where they run a household, and um, they look to the schooling system to understand how they should conduct their lives. And so that is where the purpose of life orientation comes in. So content is made available, but the content that is within our schooling system is not relevant to what is happening around us. It is not relevant to the issues of violence, gender-based violence within our country. And therefore, that's why we don't have, um, I mean, for one, I'm a teacher. I don't even know of you know, the processes of, okay, if I'm raped, what happened? What's my mistake? So um, <laughs> this is something that um, made me uh, realize how irrelevant the knowledge that we are getting in our school system is. And that is the flow um, that is in our education system. And, I, you know, this is something I've always raised with amongst my colleagues it's so important that we use whatever guidelines from CAP to make sure that um, we are teaching what is necessary, but most importantly, let 
make it uh, a point to make a, a linkage between the content and what is happening around us for people to understand what they can do with that information. So another issue I want to bring in is a lot of kids do not take life orientation very seriously. Um, that is also the main reason why, um, like, we just have a, a, a snowball effect of broken kids um, that lead to broken adults, and you know, um, we deal with consequences such as this, you know, domestic violence, gender-based violence. So the issue is that life orientation is not taken serious, and the reasoning, well, I feel the reasoning behind that is because um, our education system is not relevant to today's happening at all. And so what we do then is then to make ourselves seem like we know what's happening around us. We then totally rely on social media, making it our crutch in being informed about certain uh, you know, uh, situations re regarding uh, gender-based violence and uh, domestic violence. And that is where the problem comes from. Social media only um, provides the surface of what has happened. Um, we don't dig deep into understanding what was the root of the problem. Um, we don't follow through the entire, like if, for instance, the story leaks that oh, Ban Ban was being um, uh, abused by whoever, uh, or the story of someone who actually passed on um, as a result of the violence. We don't follow through the entire story, like what happened? Why was that man acting that way? We only focus on what happened and to who. And I think that's where we then start generalizing, like, oh, abuse only to women, but we don't dig deep and understand, like um, the previous speaker was saying, um, you find that abuse does not only happen to women and um, girl child, but, you know, it happens to boys as well, and you leave them out in the cold to deal with their emotions, and that breeds um, men that are broken and, you know, retaliate or to some extent, they have to let these emotions out, and um, letting them out might be in the form of violence or, you know, killing someone eventually. But, you know, that's, yeah, that is the idea around social media being our only crutch in understanding what is that's going down. I think we really need to be serious in isolating, um, you know, the perpetrator and understand his life, to so understand what is the root of the problem? Why is domestic violence still being an issue? Um, because if we're going to be serious about stopping that, uh, we need to be serious about the causes and not just looking at things from a surface, you know, value. Um, so in my opinion, I feel that information is available about, you know, the processes and how to deal with traumas and all of that. It is, like, I'm learning so much from my lady, you know, just talking about, um, you know, the legalities behind um, gender-based violence, the way and how to put it and all of that. Um, so information is out there. It's just that the wrong people 
are making waves um, and we're getting the wrong information. So I think uh, information is not made available in the right platform. So this kind of information should be embedded in our school system in life orientation. Um, that's how we make sure that our student system becomes relevant. So I'll end it off there. Thanks, Sijang, on the on your view. Um, just note that there's some challenges with uh, some people are saying they can't hear you. Um, some seems you blur out sometimes. Uh, but thanks again. Oh, I'm sorry for the sorry. That's okay. Um, so now I think let's just move to the to closing the discussion because I don't want to hold you hostage for the rest of the afternoon on the one topic. Um, I'm not going to ask people individually, but I'm going to allow for people to to speak freely. Oh, knowing that as best solutions are there, um, I mean, platforms are there, information is there. Having said that, what are the solutions in getting more people to speak out using these, these platforms, this information, these resources available? How do we get more people to utilize this, these platforms and information? What do we do? Because um, obviously we want to find solutions and improve the method in which people go around addressing these issues of violence, abuse, whether emotional or physical. Um, do, does anyone have any part of which solution or how we can address this particular issue? Just to close it off. Okay, can I jump in there? Yes, please. Okay, so I think um, one of the most important um, aspects we need to deal with is public servants. Um, that the first port of call for victims of abuse and in that sense i'm talking about the clerks in court I, I i cannot count how many times someone has stopped me walking by and um telling me listen i'm here to open um a case for domestic domestic abuse i cannot write in english but the affidavit needs to be written in english and the clerk has sent this person away they they say come back tomorrow and so nonchalantly that when someone is talking about my, my, my baby's father is hitting me and I live with no one else at home, no one else can write this for me. I speak to Sutra, I speak to Sutra, I cannot write this out in, in English. And they just so carelessly tell the people to go away. The same way um, that the police officers who have someone walking up to them saying, I have been raped or I have been assaulted by my partner, who ca casually say, listen, um, if your partner is hitting you, go open a case of domestic violence not thinking this is also an assault case, let me make sure I open a criminal charge against this person. The, 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 the comfort, the leisure in which people, the first port of call, send victims away needs to be changed. Um, I'm thinking that is perhaps something that further training, because we are all aware that our police officers are not well trained. We have to start at least with training um, the frontline soldiers, as people will, will, will call them, those people first. It will then stop the number of women who say, oh, it doesn't matter even if I go to the police, nothing will happen. That person will end up walking away. And, um, you know, people comfortably say, oh, no, 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 let's take away their, their right to, to bail. Just like the death penalty cannot be on the, on the table. Saying someone who has been accused cannot get bail simply because of an accusation is not enough. So we can't say, let's jump to step three in preventing this. Let's start in the beginning. The first part of call, those people who are the first contact need to be trained to deal with, this, um, with the victims, with the situations better. I think that's where the, ch the change can start.
Um, does anyone else have comments on in terms of solutions, um, ideas? Because I mean, the platforms are there, the resources are there, as Bethwell and now Lady has spoken about. Even CJ has spoken about information is available. Does anyone have any particular view on terms of solutions and ideas we need to adopt, or should we just leave it at that? Uh, Bethwell. Sure, Peter. Uh, I, I think also the information is, uh, as we said, is there. Uh, people, in order to find solution, is that we, we must stop being ignorant. And we must go out there and find the information, especially as young people. From school, whether you are a teenager, this internet and everything or technology we must use it to equip ourselves with knowledge so that is number one and and also for the information uh you see what my lady said is is very profound and it's real to say the first contact people needs to be trained but also people must know their rights also victims they must know that they do have rights. If you go to a police station to, to open a case of rape, it is your right to not, because it's uncomfortable. You can just imagine what they call church office. Uh, there are a lot of people, others that are there to certify their documents. Then you have to talk and give a statement to say, yesterday they were raped me. You understand? Ultimately, it will turn away uh, the victims to report these cases. So if you go to a police station, they look for a victims friendly center in police stations. So there we do have uh, uh, counselors and social workers and uh, crime prevention coordinators who are police officers who are working closely with us as social development. But I'm speaking only for those who are in Houghton province, because it's across the province. Uh, uh, you can actually report your case in a safe space like that, one-on-one uh, -on -one with a police officer or a counselor. In all police stations, uh, those centers in Houghton, uh, they have been implemented. I think it's one of the steps of going, uh, 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 finding solutions, uh, Peter. Thanks. Let me pause here. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, I think I think we've covered a lot, and I appreciate that we've kind of tried speaking about solutions, because we can speak about this topic until the earth stops spinning. And I, I think we, if we don't speak about solutions and actions, um, it does create the whole argument that our plight is not in void, because we don't want to come up with solutions or address the actual issues. Um, but I think we can close this particular topic. Um, we must first of all thank everyone for participating in this conversation so far. Um, it is one that obviously needs to continue happening, and I hope more people can speak up about solutions and actual actions that we can implement. Um, obviously, I obviously want to change the topic a bit, um, so I'm going to allow that flow of opportunity. Um, now, obviously, the second topic, which is a bit different from the initial topic, um, you know, deliberately, I invited everyone, knowing very well that most of us, or all of us, are basically in our youths, in our 30s, in our 20s, 
we work in different spaces, we work in different industries, and the common thing is that we're young and we're all black. And I think there's a relevance in terms of how we experience um, the workspace. And, you know, whether you're a man or a woman, you have your own different experiences and how you navigate, whether it's to get to the top. You also have the aspect of society in which it influences you in terms of your career choices, um, the importance of earning a certain amount of money, the responsibilities that come with your family, and also your own goals and dreams. And that's a discussion I think we need to have as well. And I deliberately hope that each of you, being that you work in different spaces, you live in different communities, um, each of you have a, a sense of experience, you have your own challenges. And I want to learn more about exactly what are those challenges and exactly how do you deal with those particular challenges. Um, and maybe let me start the conversation with um, maybe Olivia. Um, you know, when we speak about career growth and we speak about people entering certain industries where predominantly it's not mostly black people, in a lot of instances, it's not even black women that you find in certain sectors. What is your experience in that particular sense of whereby you are director of your own company, you've obviously had your own career growth. What is your experience in a sense of where, or what is your, in other words, when you speak about career growth, or what is your experience in terms of what are the challenges you've experienced as an individual, and you think your particular industry is improving or it's actually regressing backwards? Olivia, what is your take? Hi, Peter. Thanks for, for the question and the topic. Um, so my, my professional career started at Ernest & Young. I worked there for, for six years. And I started working there. I, I got approached while I was doing my honors degree at the Northwest University. In the second semester, I began to, to work and begin a three-month internship. Uh, whilst I got hired immediately and had to... Um, and and manage the, the, the students studying and working at the same time. Um, I want to just fast forward a bit to, to a couple of years later to um, recently, uh, in 2018, um, I had done a number of projects and I got asked to submit my CV for a, a potential project happening in the Middle East in Kuwait. So they were searching for CVs globally. And I, at the time, I, most of my, my professional career, I do consulting in the oil and gas industry. Um, advisory services um, and supply chain and a bunch of other topics. And unfortunately, in our company, there weren't many people who had many years of um, consult advisory consulting experience in the oil and gas industry or the energy industry. And I was fortunate enough to have um, done a lot of that in, in Cape Town, Johannesburg, and a bunch of places. So long story short, I submitted without thinking anything of it because um, you know they're sourcing globally. And eventually, I got selected to, to be part of this project. I had a bunch of interviews with some of the directors in Dubai and um, I got put onto this global team of three people uh, with one director. So the significance of why I'm bringing this up is that um, I was the only person from Africa on this project. Um, the rest was an MIT graduate from the States and um, a gentleman who'd been, um, who'd studied in Russia and you know, a whole bunch of other places in the world. And the three of us, along with the director, were coming to work on this particular client. And this particular client accounts for 92.7% of that country's GDP alone. Um, so it's the most important company in that country. Now, being in, 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 in an Arab environment, uh, it's, you know, it's completely different to what one is used to, uh, you know, in Africa, myself, I'm from the DRC by birth, 
uh, in a village called Kipushi and then grew up here in South Africa as well. Um, so not having any African people, forget about, you know, the race of it, but I mean, anybody from the continent. Um, and it, it was really tricky for me in that regard. Um, and every time you would see a person, a black person, uh, you know, it was exciting of any kind. And unfortunately, the only black people you find there are those working in the retail sector. So whether they're working at the stores, I mean, at the shops and all of that. So it made it difficult to try and engage and communicate in terms of some of the challenges you're having, especially as a young black person um, going in there. You have the element of starting and being looked down upon, right? Because um, fortunately, fortunately in the Middle East, um, they're very openly uh, xenophobic and stereotypical, right? So it's nothing behind the scenes. They'll tell you upright that, you know, we want to work with uh, white people. We want to work with people from the UK. This is our preference. And unfortunately, because they have uh, the financial backing of it. I mean, Kuwait has the strongest currency in the world. Um, one Kuwaiti dinner costs you about 48, 50 rand, you know, whereas the dollar is about 14 rand. The actual power of it is a different topic of it. So adding to this, um, just one last point I wanted to bring in here. I remember one of the many times um, over the last few years when I was at the airport, mind you, it's an airport I've been to many times in Kuwait. I, I arrive and the gentleman who's stamping the passport I think he was new there. I looks at my passport and he he looks at me. So he takes my passport. He looks back up and he says, you're from South Africa. Uh, I have a South African passport. I said, yes, I am. And he says to me, but you're black. And with genuine shock and surprise. And you know, I've just done about 10, 10 it's about 11,000 kilometers, 10,000 kilometers between Johannesburg and Kuwait. And I'm also a bit puzzled to why I need to explain why I'm black coming from South Africa to come and work. And the gentleman says to me, you know, it's the first time that I see somebody who's coming from South Africa who's black. So he's genuinely only seen white people. And funny enough, um, in the corridors of um, the, the airport, one of my trips coming back to going to Dubai, um, I was hearing a lot of people speak of Afrikaans and I look and it was a couple of Afrikaans guys, maybe in their forties or fifties. So it, it goes to your question around, you know, opportunity exposure and, and, and things like that. Uh, it made me really realize that there's a world of opportunities that are existing that are not being made visible to us. Um, you spoke about how environment shapes one's uh, desires or one's career choices and naturally so i mean, I mean <clears throat> you'll find a lot of um, foreign um, foreign parents who come from um, neighboring african countries or uh, mostly engineers or doctors or nurses uh, typically doctors and that's because when they grow up in most of the environments they grow up that was it if you look in the vol um you know we're exposed to a lot of um sorry just mind my son of it we're exposed to a lot of um, industrial activity and things like that. So it's very important um, to Betul's point earlier around leveraging technology to expand your mind about what opportunities exist, what interests exist there. Um, because I grew up in the world myself, so I can't say that I'm any more special than anybody else um, in terms of how we grew up, in terms of being exposed to any opportunities in my immediate environment. But Opportunities that exist elsewhere, especially as black people, especially as young black men, and especially as young black women, 
there's opportunities all over the world, but we really need to um, be able to understand how do we get ourselves exposed to that. Um, so growing up, I also, I mean, throughout my career journey, one key thing has always been to understand that you need to realize that your colleagues, especially the young non-white counterparts you're starting with, are starting on a completely different foot than you are. And you're not, you should not ever um, think that you're competing with them uh, because you, you were not, we're absolutely not. You need to just figure out how do you have the three things that ultimately make your, your value at a company um, understood, which is you know, having a great work ethic, being willing to learn, um, having a teachable spirit and having a positive attitude. Um, those three things I found, despite the, the many discriminations that happen at corporate companies, when you can apply yourself to that and focus on, you know, how do you be, how can you keep yourself internationally relevant uh, and not just be the best amongst your six friends who have maybe had limited opportunities, not be the best in your class, not be the best in, in your, your, your town. It should never be about that, um, especially in a corporate environment or any, any business environment. You should always try and strive for what does it take to be the best? Yes, you may not be the best, but starting to understand that and adjusting your actions and, and your, 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 your habits accordingly helps you get significantly um, further ahead than you would have thought. Um, I, I think I'll stop there. If you've got any specific questions, I'll, I'll gladly answer. Perfect. Um, let me get Speedway involved in the conversation as well. Um, I didn't really get um, in sense of the industry you work in, but what is your experience with um, in your particular industry and also your career growth so far, being a black woman and what are the challenges that you experience and how have you actually dealt with these particular challenges you actually experience? Sure, um, that's a bit, a bit touchy, but uh, fortunately in my career experience, I have worked for two very big corporates um, one being a telecommunications company and the other being a financial institution, a bank. And my experiences have been far extreme. You know, um, when I, my first job experience was in telco and I had the best time of my life. And um, yes, I remember this one time I almost, I actually um, typed a status on Facebook but I didn't have the courage to upload it, to post it, you know, so I saved it as one of my notes. And it was out of shock to say that I can't believe I've attended four to five meetings and I'm the only black person, one. And then two, it was that I was the only woman, you know, and I tried to think how other people will see it and ended up um, not posting it. But it was really from a stance of being very, very shocked to say that where are our people? Where are the young people of our color, you know, and stuff like that. But to be quite fair, I was treated with utmost respect. I had the best time in my career and the growth um, therein was, was humongous. The investment that they had in me as a young black woman was also um, unbelievable to a point that within four years I was already um, selected to be in a committee whereby I've been identified as the young upcoming leaders you know of, of the company and was appointed as a young chief executive um, youth officer 
you know, whereby we're given an opportunity to shadow um, one of any CEOs that actually saw um, uh, what you call this interest in you and you had to go through uh, case studies and interviews and all of those. But the point is that there was a whole lot of potential there and potential there and growth as well. So I could see where my career was. And at that pinnacle, I was like, okay, because I don't want to be too complacent and um, having just one experience from, from, from corporate, which is telco, let me try another institution. And the opportunity came. And boy, oh boy, did the coins flip, you know. Um, firstly, the reception was very hostile. And true, the system was, I'm, I don't want to say racially, but because of the background of that institution, most of the, the senior positions are, are, are occupied by white people. And the, the, the lower you go, you find that they are trying to be BEE compliant, triple BEE compliant, but they still that lag. And even when sometimes you try to introduce new things so that they can be a part of industry first or changing how we work so that they come um, to where the industry is corporate wise and stuff like that. There is so much resistant and resistance. And you see that sometimes it depends on who the idea comes from. Um, that was from my immediate team. That is from my immediate team. But on a larger scale or a bigger scale, I don't want to lie, the management was more receptive of these ideas. And you could tell that higher up in the ranks, they do see this. But there is so much resistance lower in the ranks, you know. And there is a number of issues that you can even identify therein. There is racial issues. Uh, as a female, sometimes you look down, frowned upon, and when you come up with an idea, sometimes, or when you answer a question, they're like, oh, you knew that? Oh, you're so smart. And you're like, what does that mean? You know, already with these remarks, you can tell that people have gauged you and put you in a certain rank, and it's prejudice. So it's, it, it hurts. So um, I think for the first time, as I was saying to my colleagues, that I actually went to a, a mental institution because of how hostile their work environment was. I missed my previous one because they were very inclusive, encouraging of growth and all of those things. So, but at the same time, I'm taking it as a blessing in disguise because now I've got experience on both sides to say this, oh, so this is how other people feel. This is what other women go through, you know, and there is not much empowerment on the other hand, you know from these other institutions. So at least when we do case studies like these now, we can give our feedback to say, this needs to change. This is the direction that we need to take. Such things need to be spoken about and, and put the spotlight on, you know? We can not shy away from them anymore because we're fearing one, two, three, four, five. But if we do it in a very constructive manner to show that guys, there's a proper imbalance here and there is no proper plan of how we're actually going to eradicate this and rectify it, you know, type of thing. So that's just, yeah, my, my experience is shaming, but at the same time, it's like there is hope out there. It's not everywhere where it's, yeah, True. like that. Thank you very much. Uh, that's, I think that's quite sad that you have to go through such poor, bad experiences, um, especially when you're still trying to develop your early stages of your career. Um, let me have Bethel chip in because um, his battery is about a lot, about to die, and I know he might want to speak before he leaves. Then I'll obviously allow everyone else to speak. 
Um, you work in the public sector. Mm. Quite different from some of us who work in the private private space. What is your experience of career development, growth? Um, is there enough avenues for you to grow your career in the public space compared to the private space? Yeah, thanks, Peter. I, I'm sorry, guys. Uh, I have a challenge of load shedding this site. Uh, I'm very sorry. I will be leaving soon. Yeah, uh, Peter, uh, I think the general view of people about the public sector is that public servants are lazy, uh, public servants, uh, they don't do their work and so forth. And um, I don't know whether in private sector, but uh, that is reality somewhere, somehow when I got there. Uh, uh, they, 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 there is a very limitation for growth. You know, if you are a young person, you are not ambitious about life, uh, you'll be stuck there. You, I found young people there. I normally say they are young, uh, but, uh, you know, they, they are old at the same time. You understand? They, uh, uh, I've, it's very toxic. You understand? It's very toxic. Uh, they don't embrace new ideas in innovation. Um, we have been doing these things for the past five years or ten years. Why do you bring a new dimension? Uh, we have been doing these things like this, you understand? Uh, but if you are resistant, myself, I'm very ambitious. Uh, uh, I, I took upon myself to to empower myself, you, you understand? I'm still studying uh, uh, because when you, I normally say, especially where I'm based in social development, if you don't develop yourself, if you don't study, if you don't do research, whereas these social problems, there are new social problems that are, uh, are coming out now and then. For instance, Nyaupe, it has never been there for the past six years. Now it's a problem. So if you are a public servant of the last 15 years and you are trying to deal with these issues, you understand it's going to be difficult. So, But I must say the team that I'm working with, uh, my manager, uh, my supervisor, my colleagues, uh, I received a very positive reception. Uh, but uh, the, the environment itself is is very toxic and it will give you also an understanding of uh, saying public sector is for old people. If you are working towards your retirement, it's a very good uh, environment to be. But if you are still innovative and have new ideas and everything, uh, it's a problem. And also organizational structure, the way it is, you find young people are very frustrated. It's a matter of fact that I'm a professional, right? Uh, I went to varsity, I'm a professional, I'm a social worker, but you find the way the organizational structure it is, young people get very frustrated. I can tell you as a profession, uh, uh, people who are admin, who got there with their matrix rate tens, they are any more than me. And you understand, when so dimension, such elements frustrate young people and everything, but 
uh, I took it as a stepping stone to say sometimes not only about money, but I took it as a stepping stone. This is no way I will, I will, I will, I will end. You understand? I take it as a stepping stone, get experience. Uh, yeah, yeah, that is that. But everything is there, resources and everything. You understand? Sometimes young people like to complain. like to complain but what are you doing you forever complain about your manager about the environment you understand everything is upon you so i took that angle uh, uh, to look things in that perspective to say but okay be as it may there's no time whereby there's no internet i have tools of trades a computer when i need a car to see clients to network with other stakeholders, private and public. The car is there. It always has a petrol. So I use this thing to do, to give service delivery and also to empower myself than complaining, complaining, complaining. Yeah, that is my experience, Peter. Thanks, Petrol. Let me get one of the ladies to chip in. Um, Lerato, I know you work as a recruiter. You have your own business. You've been in the industry for years and years and years. Um, being a female black business owner, you're not just an employee, but you also run your own business. You employ people as well. What is your experience in terms of your career management and your own career growth? Um, obviously, you have your own particular challenges as an entrepreneur. What exactly do you face and how do you deal with it? Thanks, Peter. Um, well, I, I think for me, what has always worked, um, I knew what I wanted um, as soon as I got to corporate. And I think it's not even about as soon as I got to corporate. Uh, even before uh, I was in corporate, while studying, um, I remember when I was young, for me, the conversations that I would have with uh, my friends, you know, when everyone is saying that I want to be a doctor, I want to be a nurse and all of that. I was like, I want to be, a, I want to run my own business. You know, I want to be my own person you know but I, I realized that a lot of people didn't understand what that was all about um and when i got to corporate it was very clear uh because i then got to realize that you know what corporate is a game you know you have to be smart to know where you are heading to and what is it that you want and that's why when they're talking about um the current top skills that one needs to have and one of them being emotional intelligence don't be petty you know Know what you want and actually make sure that you maneuver your way and build relationships with those that are for you um, and also understanding the sort of direction that you're wanting to head to. Yes, that's not going to be easy because sometimes you might find yourself having to want to get into circles that you know that you're never going to be wanted. But when you listen to people and you open yourself up to listening to people, you can just pick up what is it that they like and what is it that they don't like and that's how you start conversations with them but one of the best things that I've always done was that I like hanging out with the big boys so when I say big boys it's like your directors divisional this regional manager this and so forth why because I'm like if I want to get to the top then I must hang out with the people from the top and have those conversations with them so I found that being my uttermost skill and that allowed me to maneuver my way to the top 
And, you know, on your way to the top, of course, there's, there's challenges. There's people that are constantly thinking you're better than them. You know, there are those that are wanting to pull you down. You have your colleagues. You came in at the same time, but you have obviously opened a gap. And for them, it's like, but how are you doing it, Lorato? You know, uh, but the best thing for you is know your story. Know why you're there. You know, you, if your goal is to say, I want to learn as much as I can in that organization for the next three years, but in my fourth year, this is my plan. Do exactly that and don't be apologetic about it, you know, because even when I left uh, corporate in 2017, I knew what my story was uh, because I realized that, you know what, my calling kept on coming in. Lorato, remember this is what you said. Lorato, remember this is what you said. And I decided to honor my calling. And even in my calling right now, yes, uh, business is tough, obviously, because of COVID-19. But even in that, I like conversating with the big boys, you know, those that have been running successful businesses or those that are able to uh, make those decisions that will, that will change your life, you know. And yes, I know very well that I'm not going to be a billionaire tomorrow because this is a journey, you know, and it doesn't happen just like that. But I think what I would like to see happen um, going forward, I would like to see a lot of black role models, whether it's female or male, it does not matter. I think the more we see our own people being successful and really making it, that will really motivate even a young child watching TV to say, I want to be with, like that person. And good role models, again, you know, people that, 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 that understand um, human touch, people that understand that, you know what, everything that we do is all about relationships. Everything that we do is all about you putting in the work. You know, a lot of our colleagues or our friends, we know very well, um, and it's always been said on social media. Uh, when you tell your friends that you bought a car, everybody will, you will have like, what, a thousand likes? But tell them that you have started your business. Then the conversation is completely different because not everyone is going to actually give you a like or even actually help you to say, hey, you know what, my friend, I see um, for the last six months you've been in it. Uh, let me actually be the one that takes you out for dinner, uh, for dinner. Let me hear what you're all about and so forth. You never get that from your own friends, you know. So, but I think the most important thing, remember, I'm the one that's carrying the dream. You know, whether my peers, my friends understand it, that's, that's a different story. But I'm the one that's carrying the vision. And until we understand that, and also understand that all this vision is also godly given. You know, you don't just wake up in the morning and like, oh, I have a vision. But you know, the conversations that you have with God, you know, and what he will give you and allow you to have, you know, very well that, you know, you need to make it happen. So, yeah, that's, that, that's my take around it. You know, just know what you want and be unapologetic about it, especially, this is a great platform, you know, we are able to take it to the next level, but you know what, let us become great role models to those that are coming after us. Thank you, Peter. Thank you very much, Lerato. Uh, let me have Magiso, um, Kay, and then also CJ and Chipin as well. Um, I know, Pagiso, considering that you obviously don't come from Johannesburg, Cape Town, you grew up in a small town, um, you moved to the big city, you have your own experiences, you work in a corporate setting where maybe you're around people who come from different classes, uh, middle class, upper class. People speak about playing golf on the weekend. 
um, you have certain engagements where you don't have any familiarity with it because of the way you were raised. What is your experience in that kind of sense? Oh, thanks, Peter, for that question. Um, so in 2016, I was doing my final year. I think around September, I already signed my, my contract uh, of employment with this company and I was supposed to move to Cape Town. That was nice. And then when I got there, the rules of engagement are different. First of all, people don't greet you, you know, um, when they don't know you. They'll just pass you and I'm like, oh, that's rude. Uh, that was a shock for me. And then you get to the workplace, um, you'll see people are greeting or having conversations with people based on their positions. Um, uh, I, I think it's a good thing if you're networking, but don't look down upon you know, the others who are on your level type of situation. So I remember the one time we went to, this is in Cape Town, we went to, what is this? Hruit something, something. That's where we do wine tasting and stuff. It's in the mountains somewhere. So we're having a nice conversation there. And then one colleague uh, from Tata was like, yo, Pac-Man, uh, you look like you're so young, bro. How, like, how did you get here, man? Like, you're probably like 21 or something. Uh, you must have been super smart. Before I could say anything, this white lady, a colleague as well, uh, like, she's mad, man. She, she went, <laughs> she works with me at that time. So I'm guessing uh, she has a perception that she, she didn't know. Like, it was very, uh, it was very rude. And I don't know, man, like, she, she did that. And I had nothing, I had no comeback. I just kept quiet and then I said, okay, cool. Now I'm gonna work towards proving her um, wrong because obviously she doesn't think I'm smart enough to, to work for that company. Uh, I worked with her and then I think just before her, uh, I joined another team within the same department. Just, it's like a level, a, a level higher, she remained there. If I was someone else, I would have gone to say, you see, I'm smart after all. But I didn't do that, obviously, because I'm not like him. Um, that's the story. But uh, what I wanted to say is um, one of my uh, mentors in the firm who has since left said something to me that shook me. And I think we also have to put that into consideration. This person was saying um, he's qualified, he has all the tools, he, he has all the experience, but he won't get that top level job because uh, the money is with the whites. The money, there's old money, it's chilling, it's with the old racist people who will not like seeing the face of the company being black. So he said, I understand. And I think if I had a firm, and I'm trying to attract the money and I know where it is, I would also appoint white men because it's a perception that um, I think out there that when a company is run by someone uh, other than a black person, it's, it's gonna do very well. Uh, yeah, so I think that thing shook me so much that even in my thinking about 
maybe companies that I might start in the near future, I must have a, a white counterpart, I must have a white partner so that when we go to these meetings, at least they're there. I'll give you another example. There was a label, uh, I think it's still there, but it's pretty much dead now. It's called Lockchain Culture, a South African clothing brand. Um, so in their meetings, when they want to get sponsorships and stuff, they would have a white guy who's not even uh, a director or anything. It's just a spokesperson who'll just go there and speak the, the language and talk and shake hands as if he's part of the company, just for that trust. So I think there's a lot of prejudice out there. And yeah, so even your growth in the company might be limited by that fact. If you are in a business where people need to trust uh, that their money will be safe, you, you have to play the game the way everyone else is playing it. And you'll see if you go to a lot of investment, what is it, asset management companies, you'll see um, there's a lot of white men mostly. Uh, in these CEOs, COOs, and directorships and stuff. Yeah, so that's my take. Okay. Sorry, Peter. Can, yeah. I, can I just, um, <clears throat> sorry, I know you want to move on somewhere, but there's some interesting points that uh, we just made. Okay. Uh, just allow me a minute to respond. Um, sorry, what's the name of the previous participants again? Pakiso. Pakiso. Yeah, uh, Bakiso, thanks, man, for, for sharing some of your, your stories. Um, Bakiso, you've just uh, triggered some stuff, some quick thoughts now. Um, I, my some, some well, partners, friends of ours, we've started a company. And um, anyway, so this, all of us are under, I think, our CEO's 33. Um, our oldest director, I think, is 35. But the rest of us, there's six directors in the company, and the bulk of us are 27, 28, 29, and so forth. Um, so one thing we struggle as um, as you know, young black men who've got a world of experience, who've um, you know everybody's worked, despite our age, has worked or has at least had an experience on you know, six of the seven continents collectively across all of us. Um, but still, despite our experience, despite our ambitions, our ambitions, you know, when when we when we we began our journey, rightly as you said, um, you know, you're trying to get on new clients. Um, they struggle to, depending on the space that you're trying to get into. I remember when we had our first company back in 2017, we couldn't get even half a million rand of funding for a, a, a concept that all the institutions we approached that were mostly ran by black people said they love the concept, they love the idea, they think it's great. But um, for some other reason, there was always some way it didn't align to the final answer of yes for the financing aspect of it. So there is definitely a challenge um, across whether you're in corporate, whether you're in business, trying to get it because there are preconceived ideas. But I struggle with the notion of, um, you know, having to stick to the status quo because all we do is we perpetrate it even further, you know. And what we found is that, yes, you're going to get a lot of no's, but we insisted that, look, we don't need anybody outside of who you are for, for you to take us seriously, that we are serious about what we do. And the key to this is that those preconceived ideas are built on the fact that there have been many people who've gone before us, young black men and, and female and, they, and whatever you want to call, um, whichever, which, whichever demographic you want to take it, but non-whites who have gone in and have abused trust, have gone in and have not delivered on work, have gone in with the, with the excitement of seeing money and, and letting it deter from delivering the work. 
So one of our key principles that we have at Pax Africana Holdings is that the work has to speak for you. If, if this work was being done and no, the client could never see you, they could never know your face, they could never know your race or your age, would they still be satisfied with the work? And are you still delivering to that standard? And that's the, the, the standard we do. And we, we intentionally, um, we, we're running now a, a national campaign. We've hired 750 young people across the country um, as field workers and so forth. But in all of this, the, the provincial coordinators, the people who manage the project, are all young people under 30, um, black. Uh, we have our project managers, a young black lady and so forth. And it's because it's we have to create it. You know, it, 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 it doesn't exist, but if we don't play our part in being diligent and changing the narrative of how we perceive, how our work is perceived, we'll always be seen as not trustworthy, as, you know, we're just trying to get the, the, the tender and, uh, as opposed to delivering the work, messing it up. So I just really want to, you know, throw that in the atmosphere that, uh, yes, historically that has been the way, but we have to insist in changing our approach to delivering work at a global standard in such a way that if, if they were clients were never ever to see us, if we lived in a virtual world like we, uh, we are now, would they be satisfied with the work? And as long as you can guarantee that, I would definitely encourage to keep insisting on being black, on being young and being excellent without having to get a token person to be brought into just to help succeed. You will see a lot of failures, uh, but you'll stay true to yourself and eventually you'll get the break. Thanks. Thanks, Olivia. Um, let me have Kay and CJ and chip in as well. Um, obviously, both of you work in different spaces. Um, Kay, you work in the construction sector, uh, which I, I myself also have some kind of experience with my clients in my sector being construction clients. And you obviously have a predominance of white old men there. Even when you look at projects that happen in ESCOM or construction sites of stadiums, buildings, it's mostly led by white men in that particular sense. Um, Kay, what is your experience? You know, I, I know you have been in the industry for a while and you have your own views. What exactly do you, do you feel is your opinion in that space as a black man? All right, hey, thanks Peter for that. Um, well, um, how, how can I put it? I mean, obviously you have mentioned uh, the points that um, that is obviously obvious which is it being predominantly white but it's 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 one of those industries whereby i think a lot of black people have accepted that okay maybe the whites run this um sector and it has become so normal because we always see managers in that position so for me taking a, a role as a manager it was very different because i'd be the only black guy who would be there in a site agent meeting and it being like that, they'll speak Afrikaans because, I mean, everyone is white. I mean, Kud's a black guy here, but let's still speak Afrikaans and get the message across. And obviously, I do understand Afrikaans, so I can survive. So the language barrier already um, takes you back to an apartheid era whereby, you know, because you're not this type of language, you obviously now have to listen to Afrikaans, which is, which is quite difficult, you know. But, you know, you develop a thick skin, you know, it's a cutthroat industry whereby, you know, it's fast paced, everything needs to get done in order, you know, deadlines, you know. And I mean, it's also sad because they would look down upon a black person, um, especially if it's a thing of, hey, come manage a project. And then they see a black guy coming instead of a white guy. 
like, oh, okay, how did you get the job? You know, it's, it's, it's a lot. But I think it being uh, an industry where I have actually accommodated it and understood how it works, you can actually get through it. And when I say that, I say it because my degree, in a sense, is internationally accredited. And you'd find straight out of varsity, a lot of the white kids went overseas because they already had opportunities laid out for them. Whereas you'd find hardly any of the black guys have actually left. But there's obviously one particular person who obviously I do know has gone overseas, but it's it's a very rare case. And um, I think it also has to do with how the world may see how whites dominate the construction industry. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. Okay. Uh, Sijeng, what exactly is your experience? I mean, I know you work in the you work as a teacher as well, but are you also involved in pageant stuff, your business as well? What is your experience as a female as well? Hi, can everyone hear me? Uh, yes, we can. All right. Great. Um, so in my um, so in my experience uh, with regards to the modeling sector, um, I I hear of um, you know people's experiences and how racism was in play, but on my side. I have not, because I've just recently got into the modeling space, um, but I, I have not personally experienced any form of um, racism or patriarchy in the modeling space. So I guess I'm lucky in that sense. Um, but in the teaching space, uh, sure. It's a very... It's it's difficult to pinpoint exactly what it is, but because I mean, obviously, there's you know your private schools and then your um, your public schools, so they have different dynamics. But uh, being a teacher in a public school and being a student in a private school, um, I have um, you know certain differences in terms of you know the experience and how I was treated. So I'll speak of, you know, me being a student in a private um, school. So in that space, um, I come from Agassi. Um, I'm going to a private school in town. And yes, there are all these opportunities in within the private school. But when you see the, the logistics of... Um, it, you know, where I, I would live is, is, is very far from the school. And so um, I would automatically not be able to use um, certain resources or be within a certain team because I'm far from the school. Um, I'm far from staying behind and participating in extramural activities that could um, help me in uh, being a whole rounded person. So there's swimming pools, there's tennis courts, there's all these resources, but I think of the time it takes for me to get home. The fact that all my assignments have to be typed. Um, I have to go to an internet cafe. 
by the time I'm like quarter through my assignment, the internet cafe is closing. So what I'm saying is um, you find that people who benefit resources uh, from the resources in private schools um, are people who live close by usually or uh, I mean, yes, the school was a multiracial school, but it's usually people who have the means to maintain being um, within, you know, the school and using those resources. So it automatically shuts you out from certain opportunities. Um, so that's the experience I got in uh, a private school uh, setup. But teaching in a, a public school, I then realized, um, you know, uh, yes, I was exposed to these opportunities, but, and I mean, it allows for me to dream. Being exposed is, 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 is good in a sense, because yes, I do use these resources here and there, but um, I don't get to maybe build, uh, I don't know, a career out of it. Um, but with public schools, it's so difficult to, to, to show a child how to dream if they've never been exposed to something. And that made me realize how, um, you know, private schools are funded by, you know, um, usually uh, it's the white supremacy. Uh, and that's why they're able to, you know, um, gain all of these resources. And then you get to public schools and they lift the kind of um, extramural activities they have to do. So that's the kind of experience or the dynamic that I have experienced in um, public school teaching and being in a private school uh, space. So yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I think obviously due to time, I don't want to keep you guys much longer. Maybe just to close off, if maybe this is an open question to anyone, I think all of us can participate. You know, my, my experience is, you know, there's a challenge considering that a lot of young black people come from poor backgrounds or they come from backgrounds where their own parents are not in the space of the corporate setting. They have no experience in, you know, working as the CEO, our parents are not directors of companies, we don't have that kind of experience or family setting in our own um, families. And when you start working or you start getting a job or you start applying for jobs, you have the pressure of either determining follow your dream or follow your career desires versus the challenge of chasing money or you know, accumulating money first. You know, there's that dynamic whereby I, I need to get money so that I can provide for my family and therefore, I will accept anything, or I will have to do a certain job, or even if, let's say, you're in a tough environment, you just have to further on because you're, you have responsibilities that you need to fulfill, black tax and so forth. Mm -hmm. If someone was to approach you in that setting of whereby that's the ordeal that they have to go through, and I'm assuming all of us have maybe had some kind of degree of that experience, what do you advise to that person, or what, what is your view on that sense? the battle between earning money and you know just being able to just survive as a young person versus actually pursuing something that may be risky whether it's you know it's going to be a long journey you're not going to earn a lot you're not going to be able to provide your family with all that they need but it's the sacrifice you make what is your view on that particular topic this is open to anyone who wants to answer 
before we close off. Um, cool. Let me let me just chip that in. Um, I think when it comes to that, um, one of the things I would put us or, or how I view it as a black person on my side is that <clears throat> we're obviously going to be competing. I think that's one thing that is out there. And once the competition factor comes in, uh, I, I believe a lot of people make irrational decisions whereby they will force themselves to study because their friend is studying for medicine or they'll force themselves to study this because someone else is doing that. And um, for, my, for, for, for example, for my family, uh, my family is obviously educated and my dad would not obviously allow me to pursue my career in acting because he would have believed me studying would be more important. So cool, I went to varsity, I get two degrees. But I'm still in a place whereby um, I've done what I've done and I haven't got to where I want to be. And it has nothing to do with being black or white, but it also has to be with how you were raised in the family. So if my family thinks studying is important, I would have to go through that. Whereas for some people, it's very different. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, it does. Does anyone else want to chip in on that or have a view that differs? Oh, yeah. Pac-Man. So, my, mine was actually very interesting. Uh, so, I could have done my honors in 2017, but because at the time, my mom had just lost her job. Um, and really, the only thing we I feel I inherited from the family is the surname and that's it. Um, whereas uh, the guys that I started with, a lot of them, I know there was a couple of duckies, a couple of blacks like us who were very well off, but mostly whites come from very well off families with inheritance, granddad left this and that. They're good. So the only reason I took this, I know someone might say, yeah, but dude, you should follow your dream, do your honors, do whatever, don't take the job. But at the time for me, it was like, um, I, I had to sacrifice. I made a sacrifice. Uh, you know, my family can't starve when there's something I can do about it. And then I started working. It's very tough to study and work at the same time. But you know, you must feed the family. You must send money back home. Um, that's that's money being sent home. You can't do certain things for yourself. You want to stay in a proper neighborhood, maybe closer to work. It's very expensive because we are based in Rosebank. That's very expensive. Um, so you end up just living a not even minimum wage type of life you end up being right at the bottom because of that so yeah so it, it's very tough black tax is is a serious thing um i actually played around an idea with my friends where i felt like if there's proof if we can prove it somehow that someone needs to be paid more than their colleagues uh, then that needs to be done but obviously it's, it's a tough one, but if I could be paid more for doing the same job with the other guys based on the fact that I need to support back home, that would be great, but it's, it's a tough one. Yeah, black text. Um, thank, thank you, Peter. Um, let's have Olivier and CJ just to close off. Um, obviously, 
you all heard the question. I just want to see what's your view on that. I mean, Olivia, you have a you have a son now, and at some stage when he gets older, he's probably going to want to get advice to you in terms of his career. But there's still pressure just now in terms of where he navigates to as a young person. Oh, what? Sure. So I, I want to. Um, Pac-Man gave a very good example of um, you know the whole black tax thing. I remember in one of my first uh, in my first year at EY was. Um, on this project with a couple of actuaries and this one white actuary lady decided that after six months, um, it's like, you know what, working's not for me. Uh, I'm going to stop. I'm going to go just, uh, I'm going to go stay at our family house for, for a year, figure out what I want to do for the rest of my life, you know, figure out what I want to do next, basically. And remember, we remember looking at each other as, you know, some of the, the black guys on the team to be like, we can't even imagine what that must be like where you're working out of choice um, and, and rightfully, as you said, I think one pressure that we have uniquely placed on our generation is that most of us, as you said, Pete, in the beginning, are probably the first generation um, who, who's not fully coming out of, um, you know, having from absolute nothing or having had to hustle, you know, parents coming out of the, the, the first-hand experience of a birthday and all of that stuff. So there's a responsibility and a weight that we we bear that gives us also the responsibility one i definitely think we must pursue our dreams but we need to do it responsibly so and that responsibly so means that you know yes sometimes a dream delay is not a dream denied uh, we got our breakthrough at our company after about four years four years of um, you know consistently not getting uh, not not necessarily getting the breaks that we wanted to and, um, you know, we, we had to go work. So the key thing in this is when you, as long as you can't pursue your dream in the way you imagined it to be, um, in our cases, it's still important to see how can you leverage your circumstances where you are to still do something towards it, you know, stay up to date about it, read about it. Um, in, our, in the context of my son and um, in talking about it, none of us inherited anything. My father, my father inherited absolute nothing from his father. Uh, my grandfather died with the bicycle being the most luxurious thing he ever rode, right? So it, it, it shows us already we have to use our past as a guideline to how we shape our future. And small things like um, setting up a tax-free saving account for, for your kid, um, you know, for us as black people, you know, finding out about how do we invest in the future, finding out about how can we um, begin to save our children's future education right now. Even if it's 50 rand or you know 100 bucks a month or whatever it is that you can put aside, it will make a world of a difference because the kids that we are living with, the people we are going to work with, are competing with, we're not really competing with them. We're competing with three, four generations before them. That's where we are. They are literally our grandkids or our great, great grandkids or the beneficiaries of that same degree. So we have to also keep that perspective in mind to say, look, it, it is a fight that not just black people are facing, um, all over the world, I've, I've seen it everywhere. There are white people who have what we call black tax. It's just family tax, honestly. We just call it black tax because we're the ones who are exposed to it most of the year. Uh, but you go to the UK, you see it there. You go to wherever you go, it exists. So at some point, it can't be a valid excuse anymore. And I'm not saying it's an excuse. It's definitely a real-life crutch. But it has to encourage us to figure out that there are people around the world who are making it from even darker levels of poverty. So there's a way in which we have to find um, how do we still leverage every season that we're not in our, in our dream 
still keep that dream alive. It might happen. It won't happen overnight. And we have to get rid of this idea of success comes overnight or in a year's time, or if you don't see something working two years' time, it's worthless. Use your job where you have gained experience, build the networks, um, get the exposure that you can. All of those things are not use are not useless. You know, an experience gained is something nobody can take away from you. So um, that's that's the last thing I have for that and um, to contribute. Thanks, Peter. Beautiful. Thank you very much, Olivier. Um, and then lastly, let's have Sijeng chip in as well before we close off on the topic. Um, what exactly would you take? Uh, what's your take home of this discussion in terms of career management? I mean, being the only black woman here. Obviously, your experiences will be different, but we all have some kind of familiarity in the sense of that we are probably most the first generation to actually enter into a formal, full setting of a work environment. Um, what's your take and what's your parting words? Uh, thank you for that question. So, sure. Um, well, the previous speaker actually just spit out everything I was. <laughs> Well, not everything, but generally what I was going to say. Um, but, you know, I feel like uh, a lot in our societies, we are taught um, about success being materialistic. Um, it's about what you have. Um, it's not about, like, we don't value the, the journey, the process. Um, and so oftentimes when we uh, have to look at where we are going in terms of what we want to achieve and the trade-off that you have to make in terms of how much you need to sacrifice um, to get to where you need to be. You, you, you almost um, rush the process. You rush the journey because you really want to get there as fast as possible um, because um, we all romanticizing about, oh, if you get there, you're going to have a car or a house. So a lot of the time, um, how we pick careers, um, you know, the, the choices that we make in our careers are often um, misled by how we value um, materialistic things and, uh, you know, materialistic things over the journey. And um, we don't realize that, you know, the journey is almost like a training uh, or gym, if you will, that trains us to um, manage the success when it comes. So if we miss that stage, uh, when we do get to, you know, the career opportunities that we, we would want, um, we don't have the maturity to, to grow from it. And oftentimes, uh, you know, people lose um, themselves in the positions that they're in because they miss the journey. And sometimes, uh, or you find another person who gets frustrated with the fact that I'm not getting there, I'm, I'm putting all the work. And you put um, stressful timelines on yourself to achieve something and not realizing that it is in the journey where you learn. And like you said, you really need to take um, uh, importance in the training that you're getting, the networking that you do, these little things that we um, override are actually helping us in how to maintain success when we get there. So that is just, you know, my 
my two cents on making the best career choices. I think it's very important. I mean, yes, we we'll always have to, um, you know, sacrifice more as black people for a fraction amount of success. And sometimes that success, I mean, it's subjective. It, it could be the journey. It could be could be something small, but you have to sacrifice so much. And I, with that sacrifice, you know, sometimes support systems also fall apart. So, um, yes, that might be the case. But, you know, we can't always, like, for how long are we going to keep making that an excuse? So to some extent, something has to give, you know. Um, you have to make those hard decisions. But I do believe that with faith, with perseverance, um, if you make career choices based on um, the right reasons, um, intention again, you know, leads me to intention. It's so important to understand why, why you're doing something. The why, your uh, intention is crucial. Yo, I cannot... I cannot stress it enough. Um, your intention sees you through. If you're going to do something for the wrong reasons, you won't have the strength to be consistent in it. So the why keeps you awake. The why keeps you going when the going gets tough. So yeah, that is that is my two cents. We cannot um, we cannot keep using. Um, yeah, our sec- the amount of sacrifices we make as an excuse any longer because we're just delaying ourselves even further. So yeah, just we have to keep on going. Thank you very much. Um, I think that's a, quite a good way to end the discussion. I think we, you know, as as much as challenges that we experience in our various sectors and industries that we work in. No, um, the challenge is always going to be there. But as, mm-hmm. as you say, we've got to keep on keeping our heads up, you know, keep on pursuing. And I think just combining both conversations that we've had today regarding the GBV thing and even this whole career aspect of it, um, I think the one thing I've learned is that all of it in its entirety is that it's a process. Um, solutions, things are not going to be resolved overnight. Your career is not going to grow overnight. Your problems are not going to be resolved overnight. But it's a process of which, you know, you learn, you unlearn, um, you get to know certain things, and as you grow and you develop, uh, you empower yourself to, to move forward and even be stronger in whatever space or industry or experience that you face. Um, but in, the, in that sense, I think we've had a very productive discussion, and I hope we have more discussions in this kind of light. Obviously, I don't want to have the same discussions every week, so we will obviously continue changing the discussions to at least bring more perspectives in. I mean, one of the guests that was supposed to be in today was supposed to be a clinical psychologist. Um, she actually has a YouTube channel, and I saw her, and I actually messaged her. She's quite big, um, and she was keen to join, but obviously due to other arrangements, she couldn't join in. But I will have in the next discussion uh, as, an agreed, as an agreement. But I think... Lastly, I just want to thank all of you for taking part in the discussion. Um, there will be more discussions having. And I'm glad that at least people from different backgrounds, most of us don't even know each other, and we're able to at least share some, some similarities and also different views that we may differ on in certain aspects. But I must say thank you very much um, for your participation, each of you. Thank you. Go, Peter.
I think we've reached. Thank you, Peter. Appreciate it. Take care, man. Thank you, man. And thanks, everybody else. It was really good learning from you guys and your different experiences. Well, thanks, guys. Well, I hope you guys enjoy the rest of your weekend. Um, I will stay in touch with you guys in case you guys are available for any other discussions. Um, I know it's taking. I've taken almost two hours of you Friday, Saturday, so I must apologize. I was hoping it was going to be a bit shorter. These discussions need to be had either way. So, but thank you again for joining me. Oh, oh, yeah. Cool. Thanks, man. Sure, there is. Thank you. Thank you. No problem. Enjoy this, guys. Cheers. Cheers, man. Sure.